Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by my friend, Paul Hutchinson. In this discussion, Paul and I talk about his spiritual journey and the unique circumstances that took his life from hyper-success in real estate investing to get to dedicating his life to fighting human trafficking. Paul describes how his first mission, saving over 120 children in Colombia, led to his now 70 undercover missions and how the sound of freedom changed his life. We then take a step back to examine the scale of the human trafficking criminal enterprise and how it's possible that the American public is generally unaware that there are about 8 million children and 40 million total humans currently being trafficked, more humans in slavery today than at any point in humanity's history. Next, we discuss how Paul ensures rescued children find safe homes and aren't returned to hell after a rescue operation. From there, we discuss the tactics Paul and the Child Liberation Foundation have found to successfully heal and reintegrate survivors breaking cycles of abuse. Paul emphasizes the importance of empathy and unconditional love in solving human trafficking. We end the discussion recognizing the importance of intuition and discernment in recognizing truth. Outros available for this and all episodes available at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist, Entangled the Vibes. Human trafficking and child sex abuse are difficult topics that only get more challenging the deeper you investigate them. But that's also why it's so important that we raise awareness of these crimes so that we can put a stop to them once and for all. Thank you to Paul and the law enforcement officials fighting these organized criminals and raising public awareness. To the past and present victims of human trafficking and child sex abuse, the public is waking up. We hear you. You are not alone. You know, you use things to motivate yourself to do the right thing long enough for you to realize the right reason to be doing it. And the right reason is not things, it's making a difference. They come to the room, lights go dim, yes or no? There's some people that come to the room, man, everything brightens up. This is one of those guys. Paul is well known not only for running a $14 billion plus real estate fund, uh, and not only for his uh, tremendous philanthropic efforts globally to raise tens of millions of dollars in this fight against human trafficking and modern slavery, but Paul also has a very special set of skills that he uses uh, and puts his life on the line on every single operation where he goes undercover. He leads a group of brave men and women who sacrifice and risk everything, their lives, their capital, their reputations, to infiltrate the most heinous and disgusting trafficking networks. These are some of the most dangerous environments around the world. A philanthropist, business leader by day, but at night, one of the most effective weapons that we have as a global community. 
whether your passion is in in solving hunger or, or, or saving the trees or whatever it is, find something you're passionate about. For me, the truly innocent, there's nothing that every single person of any race, any religion can't get behind, like saving children for something that's horrible. So thank you for that. So good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. I am excited this afternoon to be joined by my friend, Paul Hutchinson. Paul, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks, Jordan. Awesome. Well, I'm super excited to have you on today to talk about a, a very difficult but such an important topic of human trafficking. Um, as you all saw from the intro video that just played, Paul has done a million things amongst them. He is the founder of the Child Liberation Foundation, which is what we'll be talking a lot about today. But I think before we get into all of that, Paul would love to learn a little bit more about your background and where you grew up. Sure. Yeah, I actually grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and uh, had a had a great uh, childhood. Uh, fortunately, in my life, I didn't end up with any kind of, of trauma. Uh, I I understood that there's such a high percentage of people throughout the world who have dealt with physical abuse and sexual abuse, et cetera. And we can get into that in the podcast some more. But I lived a lived a wonderful childhood. Um, had uh, had some. Um, some very strict uh, re religious upbringing. Uh, I see myself as as deeply spiritual now. I've got a closer connection with my Creator than I've ever had, um, being being within religious bounds. And I believe in this place, I can help to heal the world, to help people of all kinds of different religions come together and understanding how to. Uh, fight things like child trafficking together and uh, childhood abuse, other things like that. So, yeah, it was beautiful. Um, anybody who who has not been to Utah, it's absolutely stunning here. In fact, my my wife, Hada Vanessa, H-A-D-A Vanessa, she was a fairly famous actress in Colombia. At one point, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing her face on a poster somewhere. She was in all the TV series and whatnot. And, and she had never even heard of Utah five years ago. Yeah, she was. She heard of it, but she's like, "No, where is that?" I'm like, "Just north of Vegas." But uh, now she says that it looks like a Bob Rod, Bob Ross painting everywhere that she goes. It's uh, it's absolutely stunning. We've got a couple feet of snow outside the ranch here today, and it's uh, it's a beautiful place to be. Wow! And uh, I had the benefit of getting to meet your wife on our trip to Egypt as well, and she is. In addition to being a you know movie star, just such an absolutely generous and kind and incredible person. Absolutely. In fact, we met in Haiti. I was uh, I had just finished the, the conducting the undercover work and that ended up rescuing thirty four children in in Haiti, and she was donating her time in the orphanage in Haiti. So I tell people meeting a beautiful Colombian actress is kind of cool, but when she's donating her time at an orphanage in Haiti, that's that's amazing. And so her and uh, you met uh, our daughter as well, Kara, absolutely. Um, a spiritual giant um, is what we call her. She's uh, <laughs> absolutely the healer of all healers. And she's gone around the world and studying different kinds of holistic healing tools. Uh, started out with trying to figure out the best ways to heal some of the victims of human trafficking and even some of my operators. And so she's she studied uh, sound bowl healing. She's a Reiki master. A lot of 
lot of beautiful tools that she uses to help people heal as well. Yeah. Wow. I think that's a great way to put it. And she's definitely, you know, a wise healer beyond her years for sure. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of topics that I want to discuss with you. I guess the first that comes to mind is, is you talk about coming up from a very traditional, uh, even orthodox religious upbringing to what is now very spiritual, but also very, uh, you know, unorthodox. I'd, I'd be curious to hear how that evolution progressed in your life. You bet. You bet. Now, I will, uh, I, I have no, I have no negative feelings towards uh, the church of my childhood or, or any other religion. I think that there's, beautiful truths in in all religions that can help us in our our uh, our spiritual journey um i will say that many of them uh are teaching uh judgment and condemnation and a view of god that is that is angry and my my understanding of god in my world and my life is is very loving is tied to uh, beautiful, unconditional love, and uh, in a way that we can truly help uh, each other ascend and, and find true happiness by helping them see how they can have a beautiful relationship with their Creator, um, regardless of their religious background. I I, I spent um, I spent a few weeks in um, in Israel right after our trip to Egypt. Uh, we were in Israel for a bit. We were in um, in Jordan for a little while. And it was fascinating to me how you've got 3 billion Christians and 2 billion Muslims and a whole bunch of Jews all fighting over the same freaking rock in the middle of the city, right? You know, they, it, it's, uh, and, and when, you, when you look back at a lot of the teachings, the original teachings of Jesus and even the original teachings of Muhammad and others, they were all very similar in, in peace and love and acceptance and, and transparency and and forgiveness. They were all very similar. But unfortunately, I have seen over time uh, a lot of divine inspiration mingled with the ideas of man that would create divisions. And those divisions have happened for thousands of years. Uh, these divisions in, in uh, gender inequality and race inequality and religious uh, um, superiority and whatnot are things that I have seen over and over again that has created significant amounts of contention. And uh, I, 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 I am still a very strong, uh, committed uh, Christian. At the same time, I've got wonderful friends who are Muslims, who are Buddhists, who live peaceful, uh, loving lives as well. And so um, I, I, I will not be ashamed to admit that I have not lived uh, uh, according to all of the, the teachings of some of these great spiritual leaders. Um, I've made plenty of mistakes in my life, and those mistakes have caused a lot of heartache for me and other people. And in doing so, I've, I've, uh, it's brought me to my knees many times. And in that position of, of, um, of, uh, of searching for spiritual uh, enlightenment and a closer relationship with God, uh, I've, I've come to a place where it's not me being forced to make good moral decisions. It's doing so by choice because it is what I am here for. It is what creates happiness and, 
and that's that's part of my drive in helping the world heal from a lot of the contention that we see today. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful. Thank you. So then going back into when you decided to devote your time full time to philanthropy and start um, the Child Liberation Foundation, you know, could you talk about your career before that? Uh, obviously being an exceptionally successful real estate investor, how did you make the decision to leave that career to focus on human trafficking and, and child liberation? You bet. Well, and, and uh, the answer to that story goes back to my early 20s. I had a friend and a mentor that said to me at that point, he said, Paul, he said, if you make a decision today that not 5 or 10% of your money, but 20% of your money and 20% of your time is committed to making a significant impact in the lives of others to charity. He said, your, your financial success and the success of your business pursuits will be infinitely greater. And back then I'm earning $2,000 a month. I'm, you know, 20% of that $400. I'm living on 1600. That was hard. That was a big chunk. I'm thinking, well, can I wait until I get rich to do that? He said, no, you do that now and, and it will make all the difference and everything. And so I did, I, I started uh, donating a huge percentage of, of my income to charity. Um, I started serving on different charity boards. I, I didn't know where to start in the beginning. So I was, I was donating money to a 40-year-old man who made bad decisions. Now he's asking me for drug money on the side of the street. You know, that just, that just didn't feel right to me. In fact, we had one uh, situation where I took the kids and we, we decided to, to, to get a bunch of pizzas. And we were going to go take these pizzas down to the homeless. And we had, had the, the, the pizzas in the back seat with the kids. And they were handing out pieces of pizza to the, the people in the homeless area. And uh, they had it, and one of them says, oh, give me the box, give me the box. And he actually reached in and grabbed one of the boxes out of my kid's hands and ripped it. And then one of the other um, homeless guys was grabbed it out of him. They're throwing F-bombs all over the place. I'm like, oh, this is not the energy that I'm wanting my kids to experience, you know, and feeding the homeless in this way. I rolled up the windows and I'm like, we're done here. And so after that experience, I thought, where do I want to focus my time and my money? And I felt for me in my life, it needed to be the truly innocent, a, uh, a child, a nine-year-old child in a position completely outside of any decisions that she made uh, that's in a difficult place. Maybe, maybe a child that's in a primary children's hospital that's, that has cancer or something like that. I donated time for things like the Ronald McDonald House, and, and, and I was actually working at primary children's early on in my career and when, I, when I wanted to be a doctor. But I, I, um, I, I, in fact, that's a really cool, we'll come back to that later because that's a cool, that's a cool story. But, um, I decided I would focus my philanthropic money and time on children. And, um, I served for, I served on a number of different boards of child related charities. I was seven years on the make a wish board of directors. Um, I was the incoming chairman for uh, for Make-A-Wish in this area when I got a call from our Attorney General, Sean Reyes. Uh, Sean is, uh, has been very involved in fighting uh, human trafficking. And he, he said, Paul, he said, I, I know that you've donated a lot to child-related charities. Um, there's a Homeland Security agent I want you to meet. He has identified about 20 children in Cartagena, Colombia that need 
that they're being trafficked. These are sold for sex, organ harvest, and horrible things. And uh, he said they need about $50,000 to make that happen. Um, and, uh, you know, $10,000 with Make-A-Wish, I can pull, I can sell a girl to Disneyland for a week with her family, which is important. She's struggling with cancer. But 50000 here, we could help pull 20 children out of hell and get them back to their families. Uh, and so uh, I don't know if uh, your listeners know a guy by the name of Glenn Beck, but he stepped forward and helped. I helped. We, we pulled some people together, some other investors, and helped to make that happen. And uh, about a week later, he called me and he said, Paul, he's just a Homeland Security agent. He said, Paul, he said, I'm in Colombia. Uh, there's not just 20 children here. There's more than 50 in Cartagena. And there's more than 100 children in the surrounding areas that are tied to the same ring. He said, we have a plan that we believe we can rescue all 100 plus children at the same time. He said, I need your help if you're willing to really step up and help with this. And I said, well, how much do you need? What, what are you looking for? He said, Paul, I need you. Can you be in Colombia in two days? He said, I'd have to have somebody who can effectively negotiate a multi-million dollar real estate transaction with the traffickers. And what his idea was, was there was this head trafficker named Eduardo um, had a piece of property. It was an island that he had inherited from his mother. He wanted to develop it into a child brothel sex resort, similar to what, you know, Jeffrey Epstein supposedly was doing with the children, you know. And he thought he could make tens of millions of dollars a year by bringing wealthy Americans down for sex parties with underage girls and boys. And um, he said, this trafficker who's got 14 children um, tied up or at his place right now that he's controlling, he has connections with all the other traffickers. And somehow we need to get him to call the other traffickers and get them to bring all of their children to the same place on the same day so that we can rescue them all. And I said, well, how, how, are, how, do you, how can I help with that? He said, well, you fly down here. You convince them that you're willing to fund that project. He said, under one condition, that they have a party for you in the next two weeks, and they bring 50 to 100 children for you and a whole bunch of your rich buddies that are going to come down for that party. He said, at that party, we'll do a sting. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll rescue those kids. Now, the story that I'm telling you is actually coming out in a movie called The Sound of Freedom. The Sound of Freedom starts by, by following this, uh, the role of the Homeland Security agent, Tim, when he was uh, working uh, with Homeland Security, when he had found some of the children, etc. Um, my role is played by uh, Eduardo Verastegui. He's uh, one of the more famous actor, actors in Colombia. I was with uh, Eduardo and the past president of Mexico, and everybody wanted pictures with Eduardo. Nobody cared about the president. He's, he's uh, very well known down there. And he, he, um, he doesn't play Paul Hutchinson because at the time we put the movie together, I didn't need the world to know who I was. I was still doing undercover. He plays Pablo Delgado, the billion-dollar fund real estate manager who, who uh, goes undercover and helps, helps to identify and pull these children out. But in answer to your question, what changed my whole life was on this mission. Um, we were down there, um, and these guys bring all of these children together. There was 54 of them that were brought to the, the Cartagena um, um, sting. That we had one in Medellin, one in, in Armenia. And all together, over 120 children were, were brought on the same day. I believe at the time it was the largest child rescue mission in one day in history. 
And the thing that changed my life the most is I'm sitting at this table with these traffickers. We had put the children in a separate part of the house because they're already traumatized enough. We don't want them to see the, the guns and the people um, um, changing money, et cetera. And one of the traffickers, this Eduardo guy, he stands up and he goes, Pablo, he said, I have to show you the gifts that I brought you. And he goes in the house where the children were. And he was in there for about 10 minutes. And you could hear a couple of the children crying. They were so scared of coming out and meeting the men who were supposedly going to, to, to defile them. And um, he comes back out and he has four virgins scared to death. He had three little girls, one little boy. This little boy was 11. He was taken from Haiti. They gave him cocaine that morning because he was so scared it was going to hurt. What kind of effed up monster thinks that that's attractive? You know, every cell in my body wanted to just hug these kids, tell them you're going to be fine, you're going to see your parents again. I couldn't say that. I'm sitting there at this, this table and I'm this little girl, she's got tear stains on her makeup face. She's looking at me like I'm the devil. I'm, I was so glad it was us there and not some monster. And, and, and she went back in the house and then... Something happened that it was it was miraculous that that I was there as somebody that would that could deal with. I mean, there was there was a whole team of people that were making a difference. I don't want to take any credit at all for this. I'm just telling the experience that changed my life. And and we were supposed to um, order tequila, and the 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 undercover agents we had. Undercover agents that were our maids and our waiters and our cooks, and they were supposed to go and make a radio call, and 25 special forces guys were going to come and storm the party and arrest everybody and whatever else. Well, so as soon as we got them to say all the horrible things that were the kids were there for on undercover cameras, we ordered tequila, and nobody shows up. Not five minutes, not 10 minutes. It was 45 minutes later. And what we found out is that the, the lady who had been part of the, um, the, the rehabilitation, whatever. She kind of slipped through her alarm or something. She missed the boat coming out. So the situation was all of a sudden, it's like, okay, time to party. These guys are great. Bring out the cocaine. One guy's like, okay, bring out the children. I'm like, crap. You know, we can't this. Where are these guys? Where's the, where's the special forces guys? And so I'm, I'm thinking, okay, what do we need to do? What, how can we delay? Delay, delay, delay. And so I says, guys, wait. If you bring out those kids and the cocaine right now, I'm going to be effed up for the next few days. You've already proven to me that you could provide what I wanted to prove. You've proven it. Bring out a piece of paper. I want to do a business plan right now. I want to see exactly what it is that you guys want to do with this island. Let's, let's go through the details of it. And I'm telling you what, Jordan, that was the darkest business plan you can imagine. We're going through these numbers. There, I, I'm asking them, well, what, what does it cost to, to, uh, to bring in a, a little American girl? What does it cost to bring in somebody from Honduras or whatever? And in this, this business plan pencil, and it was sick. It was distorted. And the traffickers, uh, the, the agents still hadn't come as we were going through. I'm like, now what? I'm like, okay, here's the deal. I, I'm going to fund this thing, but I want, I want 51%. I want control. So you got 49% to work with you guys. I think that, and I pointed at one of the traffickers, I said, hey, you've done most of the work. You should probably keep 30%. You guys can all split up. Why don't you guys figure that out? And so, boom, now they start fighting with each other about who is going to have the majority of ownership of this company for the minutes. And then by the end of that, the agents came, stormed the party, 
arrested everybody. And the most beautiful part of my life was after that the agents arrested everybody, us included, and and 30 Child Protective Services people came in with the children. And they started laughing. They started singing with the children. And that sound of freedom versus the crying that we heard half an hour before, that was the most beautiful sound that I ever heard. And I started crying. That's why the name of the movie is The Sound of Freedom. And and they weren't supposed to tell the children that we were the good guys, but somebody must have said something because this 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 child, the same one that was standing in front of me with tear stains in her makeup face half an hour before, she was standing there by the window. Her hand was on the window. She was crying again, but she was waving and smiling and, and said in her broken English, thank you, Americans. And that changed everything for me. I, I turned to the attorney general and I said, bro, I said, I've, I've spent my whole life making rich people richer. I've made millions of dollars in the process. I want to make a difference. I want to write you a check. What do I need to do? And he said, Paul, he said, unfortunately, the majority of demand for this horrible act in second and third world countries comes from wealthy businessmen and politicians and others in first world countries. He said, I can't teach these Navy SEALs how to wear a $4,000 suit and a $50,000 watch and negotiate a multi-million dollar deal. He said, and I don't know of any ultra successful business owners who have the training that you've had. He said, if you're willing to be the bait, I'll change your whole life. So since that time, I've, I've led, uh, we just counted the other day, total, if you count the number of times that I went in multiple times for the same sting, uh, it was, it's been 70 undercover rescue missions in 15 countries. I worked with that foundation that, uh, that, that uh, Tim had for a while, um, separated from them about four or five years ago. Um, and so that we could control where the money was going. And we, I wanted to make sure that the, that almost every penny was going directly to the rescue rehabilitation and reuniting with the children, with their families. And now I've come to a, a whole new place in the majority of our conversation. I could go through 70 other uh, undercover rescue stories like that one, but I want to talk with this audience more about the healing side, more about healing because it's not just healing the trauma victims that were in sex slavery. Every one of us have trauma in some way. And I want to go into detail about what that is and, 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 and how we can work together to raise the vibration yeah. of mankind and create healing worldwide. That's beautiful. And I, I would love to do that. And I think, um, you know, before we get into that, would love to learn a little bit more just about the industry of human trafficking. So I guess first off, when, when was that first mission that you did? That was almost nine years ago. Eight and a half years uh -huh. ago was that first one. Because so, I guess my question is, before you got involved with that organization, like, had you known how big of a problem human trafficking was? No, where, I, I had no idea. Honestly, I haven't, even, I haven't even had a conversation, not one conversation about it. But what I realized there is that, that, that this is the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world. And it's now the second most profitable. It's, it surpassed the illegal arms trade. And, and now it's, it's, it's going to pass the drug trade. And, um, and it's because you can sell a bag of cocaine once. You can sell a child 20 plus times a day for the next 10 to 20 years. And that's the challenge. And there are more today. I'm not talking about just 
children being abused at home. That's a massive problem that we'll talk about later. But sold human beings, there's more today than all 300 years of the transatlantic slave trade put together. All of those. Now, granted, we have a larger population on Earth today, but one child being sold is unacceptable. Eight million is beyond comprehension. And there, there are tens of millions, over 40 plus million people in human trafficking today, sold human beings. And we think, we sit back and think that slavery disappeared at the time of Abraham Lincoln. No, it went dark, it went underground, and it's yeah. as prevalent today yeah. as ever. And it's, it's horrifying to learn it, but I think that's, I think one, that's why there's been concerted efforts to keep the true nature of the problem as well under wraps as it has been. Um, but on the flip side, I think that once people start waking up to it, that also means it, it can be such a big, big catalyst for good, for recognizing, guys, we can't sit on our thumbs. We have to do something like it. There's, this is unacceptable. Yeah, exactly. And that, that's what happened to me. Once I realized how big of a problem it was, once I saw that fear in those children's eyes, I, I thought this, this cannot be unseen. In my world, now that I know that it exists, I will do everything in my power to and, stop. And Paul, I definitely do want to focus on the healing and the light side of this, but I do. there are a couple other systemic questions I want to ask you about this enterprise just so people can get a real understanding of the scope of the problem. So you mentioned 8 million currently is the estimate globally. Is that right? Yeah. So obviously the transportation and movement of children across international lines is requires a very sophisticated organization, right? This is not, this is not a couple guys, you know, loading, loading bags out of a truck or something. How, how do you think an organization this sophisticated has been able to proliferate as long as it has? On the honest answer? Yes, please. Because the people who are involved as consumers have way more power than you and I could ever imagine. From a political standpoint, uh, from a business standpoint, um, the, uh, the decision to leave borders open should not be a political decision. This is, this is a saving traffic children decision. It, it should have never been a right or a left issue in any way, shape, or form. The, uh, the amount of human trafficking and the ease of that being able to come across any border that is, that is not secured is astronomical. And so, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've cleared my way from, uh, from being hardcore on the right or the left. I've got friends on all areas. I've got truths on both sides. But I will say that, that um, the, the movement of children in and across the U.S. borders is easier today than it's ever been. And is that driven by NAFTA? I don't know. You know, I don't. I, I stay away from all the political crap. All I, what I've seen on the ground. Um, in fact, I had I had one uh, attorney general from uh, from a state far north in the U.S who has asked me and some of my operators to come and do some undercover work in his state to identify children who are being sold for sex in his state that have come across the open border. 
so he can he can prove that that's that's a that's a challenge all the way up to one of these northern states. So yeah, I don't I don't get involved in the political side crap, but I will say that that yes, that is that is a big issue and it's being proliferated by by the open border. And it seems like the narrative around what's even going on at the border has been very distorted by the media. Would you agree with that? Of course it has. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's that and and it's not just what's going on at the border. Understand that if you make it super easy to illegally take somebody from one country to another one, now you've taken away a lot of their options. I can't tell you how many times we've rescued children in countries where where they weren't from that country. I'd I'd say that almost half of the children of the last four or five missions that we've done actually is closer to 80% of the last four missions that I that I led. 80% of them, those children were not from that country. They were brought in from Venezuela. They were brought in from Honduras. They were brought in from Mexico. They were coming in from another country. And because once you take that child out, then you take away their, their ability to, to move around. They don't have a passport. They don't have a visa, et cetera. Now they're in a whole new level of fear and a whole new level of control. And it happens all the time. Do you think that there are factions of the intelligence agencies involved in this? I have really good friends in three-letter agencies that are good men of integrity. But to say no would be an outright lie. I know, I know there's, people, there's people in government, in all governments, that are tied to trafficking. And, and, you know, I'm not going to publicly point any fingers anywhere, but I, but I will say that there's, there's, uh, there's challenges all the way as high as you can imagine on, uh, on, on the power scale that are involved. And that's, that's really, uh, that, that exact truth, I think is what part of what makes, uh, it's so difficult for a lot of people to accept the reality of what's going on with this human trafficking, uh, with this issue. And so on that note, right. I mean, where, where can people go if they want to learn more about this issue, uh, where you, you think it's, it's a trustworthy source. Um, we've got a lot of information on our website, uh, liberateachild.org, um, or liberatechildren.org. We'll, we'll take you to uh, to that. And there's a lot of, of great foundations out there. Some of them are blowing up the numbers uh, for their own, um, you know, their own narrative. Um, I will say that it gets significantly worse when um, when there's uh, natural disasters or unnatural disasters, even things like the war in, in Ukraine right now. Uh, we've got operators from other foundations that we have helped to fund that are actively on the ground right now that are are helping um, the the huge spike in uh, human trafficking, especially in child trafficking. There, uh, when when we did a, a rescue in in Haiti, uh, thirty four children in Haiti. Uh, there was actually a documentary um, made about that that rescue and some of the team that was involved. And at the end of that. You'll see there's this 14-year-old girl, and she's, she's holding a, I believe she was holding a teddy bear. I have to look at it again. But she, that little girl was taken when she was seven. Her parents were killed in the earthquake, and nobody even knew that she 
existed, she, that she was alive. Nobody knew because there was so much confusion everywhere. She was taken by traffickers at seven years old. She was sold for sex 20 plus times a day for seven years. And I was the first person, me and one of my operators named Andy were the first people to, to, to find her. Uh, we had worked our way up to what I call a level three trafficker. This is somebody who physically holds the children in captivity. Um, this was a female trafficker. And, and this was in a dangerous area of town. This is Patientville outside of Port-au-Prince. About two o'clock in the morning, had worked our way up there. And she sticks her key in this, uh, this door. It's a red door. It's about four feet wide. It's about seven feet tall, uh, rusted um, steel door. Sticks a key in this door, opens it up. And the first thing I see is a, a hallway. It's a dirt hallway with dimly lit lights and some cobwebs and multiple cell doors down the left-hand side. Cell doors. I mean, these were no windows, no access outside of the small steel doors there. Sticks a key in one of these doors, opens it up. And the, the first thing I see is that it's not even a bed. It's a metal plank that, that was held to the wall with a chain. One thinks you can pull it up and down, etc. And to, and there was this dirty, dingy, holy blanket that was, that was on that. Um, and, and to the left, there was a concrete block. And this little girl was sitting on that concrete block, looked up at me with this blank look in her eyes like, this happens every day. I'm, I'm like, yeah, that's what my boss was looking for. And we, we went down to the end of the, the hall, and there's this little bit larger room where this old queen-size mattress on the floor with condoms around where the unthinkable would happen over and over again with these children. That little girl didn't speak for two weeks after we rescued. And her very first words that she said were, I didn't think anybody would come. She gave up hope seven years before. And nobody was looking for her. And why would a couple guys from Utah end up in Port-au-Prince, Haiti at two in the morning? We were the, what makes me so mad is that in seven years of all those men who were there, we were the first ones that were there without that intention, without the intention to now, you know, we were able to find a, a relatives that could provide a healthy home for her, get her back in school, learning to dance. Every one of these children have a story like that. Every one of these children have something where they, they were, were broken in some way, they got crossed a border some way. So that's, that's what we're here for, is to figure out how to, how to help them heal and to help heal the problem, the demand itself is, is the only way that we're going to fix this. Pulling in thousands of children is never going to fix the problem. You've got to fix the demand. Yeah. Yeah. And as you talk about, you know, when you rescue these children and reintegrating them into, you know, society, one of the issues that uh, I noticed in, in that documentary Operation Toussaint was that, uh, after one of the missions, you know, a lot of the kids didn't have families to go back to, right? So how do you solve that? I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you find a place to, you know, make sure they don't go well, back into hell? We've, we've got, we've got a whole bunch of families that are, uh, that are willing to sacrifice the next 10 to 20 years of their life, 50 years of their life, even with a challenged child, but they may not have the money 
to to facilitate the adoption or the paperwork, the legal stuff to move them from one country to another. So a couple of the foundations that we have helped to fund facilitate things exactly like that. And uh, we've you can't just pull them out of hell and put them into another hell. You can't leave them in an orphanage the rest of their life. You need to teach them and, and, and put them into a healthy home where you have a living, breathing, loving human beings, a family that's willing to work with them. And you'll be amazed at how quickly these children are able to um, bounce back many times better than some of the older victims that we pull out that have been doing it for 10, 15 plus years and they're so stuck energetically in this space of, of uh, self-deprivation and, and lack of self-love and not seeing any other options in their life. Um, but, but yes, if, if um, we won't go into a country to, to work on helping children doing the rescues in any of the foundations that we help to fund, they help identify uh, safe houses first. Um, where they've got therapists and people to work with the children. That's the primary um, goal. Is the re- that's where the real rescue is. Pulling them out of trafficking is only the that's the easy part. But uh, the long term part. And there's there's so many good foundations. Ones that I've worked with in the past. Other ones. CLF is just one that helps to fund others. Um, yeah. You know, we we identify good foundations that we can focus the money on to help with the rehabilitation of the kid. Yeah. And that's that's really great to hear. Do you have those foundations listed on your website? Um, we we brought on a bunch of new ones recently, but yeah, okay, we do have a few if, for sure. Yeah, I'm just wondering if there's if there's a list I can share for people because one of the things that I've come across in some research is that it seems like some of the organizations that claim to be helping uh, rehabilitate children and to prevent child trafficking are actually perpetrators of the of the crime would you think that's accurate yeah yeah i've seen that i've seen i've seen it be worse because of some of them in there and their tactics of finding the kids so yeah that's that's uh it's definitely something i've seen as well and you know unfortunately there's some foundations that a large percentage of the money that comes into the foundation isn't going to the rescue and rehabilitation and reuniting with the kids with their families they're they're um it's going more to promote that company's logo and and their founders you know face etc and you know anybody who's doing good that's that's trying to make a difference in the world i i you know i i, I admonish them i'm not going to tear anybody down but yes it is important to make sure that your money is going into foundations that that the majority of that money isn't going just to promote the foundation again itself and claiming that they're that they're uh, um, spreading awareness against child trafficking, where in reality people are just promoting their own their own fundraising. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yep, that's a great point. So, yeah. And so, I definitely want to ask you more about um, the rehabilitation process and techniques that you found to be successful. Um, <clears throat> but first, there was one other more more difficult topic I wanted to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Um, do you believe that there's a relationship between human trafficking and satanic ritualistic abuse? Oh yeah, for sure. There's, there's a lot, there's a lot, you know, there's, there's a very dark subject there, but um, you know, it's something that, um, that is starting to pop up mainstream. You see, you know, big fashion companies that are, 
that are uh, using the the plight of of uh, damaged children to try to promote their brands, and it's super sad that it, that that stuff is is uh, that they're so bold and blatant in bringing it right out in front of some of the things that they're doing. But but the the answer is without a doubt, without a doubt. And um, you know, again, that's not something that I want to go through on detail publicly. But yes, we have seen it, and uh, we have we have helped in uh, taking down some of those things. Yeah. Well, thanks, Pi. I appreciate uh, appreciate you touching on that. Obviously, not a, a subject people are, are often open to talking about, but I think it is something that you know is important part of the story. And, and for folks who aren't familiar with that, you know, Balenciaga campaign, please do some research. It's it's really disturbing. Yeah. Um, so on a brighter note, so let's talk about, you know, some of these, uh, techniques you've, you've used that you've seen successful for these survivors to really come back and reintegrate and, and, uh, reintegrate with society after living in these hells. You bet. You bet. You know, I will say that, you know, in some of the areas, if, if the parents have reported the children abducted or, uh, then they, they get them back and that's a healthy home that we can help put some therapists on and help the kids rehabilitate. Uh, for some of them, uh, like for example, in Southeast Asia, in in, uh, in areas of Thailand, uh, more than half the children that were rescued there were sold by their own families. And in that situation, you can't put them back in a position where they're being sold again. And so, uh, finding a healthy home or uh, alternative way to help them heal is super important. Um, but moving beyond that, i i have I have come to a realization recently that I was shown the pit of hell over and over again for the purpose of healing the cause itself. And uh, I come with the credibility of being there, of seeing the darkest, deepest depravity of, of, of our world in child sex trafficking and organ harvesting. I've seen it firsthand. And that is dark. It's a dark subject. Um, but why? Why are we to this point where that's okay? Why are we to this point where that's going criminal enterprise? Why? How did we get here? And as I was, as I was studying and, and, and meditating and trying to figure out what my, what my sole purpose was here, I came to understand that if you're in a group of five men anywhere in the country, probably anywhere in the world, I haven't looked at the worldwide statistics, but in the U.S., of five men, one of those five has been has been a, a victim of violent sexual abuse in their life. Twenty percent of all men, and one fourth of them, it was done to them before they were age ten years old. That's two hundred million men walking around who had had violent sexual abuse before the age of ten years old. So, if we're talking about where the demand is coming. And, you know, some guy becomes super successful. I'm not saying all the demand comes from that, but I'm telling you, hurt people hurt people. And, and from, a, from a spiritual, energetic standpoint, these guys, you know, they go and have a big ego with a big company and a lots of big money. And they're thinking, well, I was raped at that age. It's not going to hurt if I rape somebody else at that age. That's a direction. Those are now contact offenders, right? Other things, things like, like pornography. Um, most people think that pornography is a victimless crime. You know, I'm the, I'm the privacy in my own office. It's not going to hurt anybody. Every single one. 
I mean, not not just because you look at pornography, it doesn't mean you're going to become a pedophile, but every single one of these guys that have been arrested started with a hardcore addiction to to pornography. And they needed something, just like any drug, they needed something harder to have that same fix. And for some of them, a little bit harder was a little bit younger, a little bit younger. Pretty soon they're fantasizing about something they wouldn't even thought was attractive five years ago. And then they're acting out on these horrific fantasies. So again, if 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 you're if you're taking a woman from a divine feminine to an object, you start going down a dark road, right? Now let's talk about just women. Forty percent of all women have been have been victims of of some kind of of sexual violence, and one fourth of all women it happened while they were children. That's a that's almost a billion women on this planet that have had sexual abuse as children, and the majority of them, over uh, so ninety, I think it was ninety two percent of them, that abuse as children was done by a family member, okay, the or or uh, somebody that the family knew really well. Fast forward, the average age of somebody who comes out and says, "I was." sexually molested as a child, the average age is 52 years old. So people spend their entire adult life holding on to this massive amounts of trauma. So we, we realize there's lots of good organizations out there that are doing anti-child trafficking. There's, there's a lot of them. We help to fund a lot of those ones. The Child Liberation Foundation, as of the last six months, is not going undercover and finding those kids. Instead, we've pulled back and said, how can we fix the problem? And, and we realized that, that the Child Liberation Foundation was not just to help rescue a 10-year-old out of the clutches of a trafficker in Honduras. It's to help rescue the 10-year-old inside of a 20, 30, 40-year-old man or woman who had childhood trauma that, that if we can help them heal before they become contact offenders themselves or or, or become before it comes out in the form of verbal abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse or whatever else, if we can help them heal, then we can save millions of children, not just thousands of them. And so that's where my primary focus is, is in truly being what I call a heart healer, a soul healer. When I was, um, that's the story I was going to tell you, when I was 10 years old, my goal, I wanted to be a doctor, not a regular doctor. I wanted to be a surgeon, not a regular surgeon, a heart surgeon. Not a regular heart surgeon, but one that focused on children. I wanted to be a pediatric cardiologist. And, and I got in a major car. I was going um, to school. I was a couple months before taking the MCAT. And I got in a major car accident. I severed all the tendons in my hand. And they didn't know if I was going to have the, the dexterity to be a surgeon. And so I was encouraged to change my, my major because I, I didn't want to just be a regular doctor. I wanted to you know, be a heart surgeon on children. And so I changed it to business and finance and built the companies that I did. But here we are, fast forward. I'm 40 years older than I was when I, 10-year-old, wanted to, wanted to be a heart surgeon. And um, my passion has never changed. Healing the hearts of children is my greatest passion. And healing the hearts of, healing the child heart that 10-year-old child inside of a broken adult, that's, that's my biggest passion because that's going to help change the trajectory of 
what is now the fastest growing criminal enterprise. And it's going to fix a lot of other things too. Not just the, the child trafficking itself, but the bigger problem of a billion women being sexually abused as children. Own right. Lives. Right. Well, and I think to your point about the more you can heal the people who have been abused, the more that will resonate. Right. And I think a great example is even with uh, Elon recently taking over Twitter and recognizing, hey, we've got a massive issue with sexually exploitative material and, you know, finally doing something about it because one of the survivors had said, stood up and said, hey, guys, what is going on in this platform? So, you know, it's it's certainly not as as soon as as fast as you'd like. And it's people should be curious as to why you're hearing certain things about Twitter, but but the mainstream's not reporting on shutting down child exploitative material. But nonetheless, point is, it does feel like there is this rising frequency of it being raised in people's overall awareness and doing things to fix mm-hmm. it. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I've, I've been, I've been trying to figure out what that path looks like for the last 10 years. I've had, very limited um, social media of any form. Uh, anytime that I did an interview, it was very closed group, nothing that could be put out on the internet um, because I was still doing a lot of the undercover work. And I, I, I never wanted the notoriety. I, I never needed that. I, I, I would be perfectly happy with the, you know, a beautiful home on a, on a lake somewhere with a garden and just away from the world and not, not dealing with any of this crap. I don't need a, a target on my back. I don't need people throwing crap and whatever. But I've come to understand that, that I have a responsibility because I've been in the depths of hell, because I've seen it personally, and because I have seen the things that can heal, that I have a responsibility of sharing some information that will not only help stop child trafficking, but is going to help heal people from all of these sexually related challenges and domestic abuse, et cetera. And so that's, that's more on that, that, um, uh, that spiritual journey that we were talking about earlier, but it's been very, very effective. I've got, uh, I've got three more books that are going to be coming out this year. It's going to be telling a lot of these stories. Um, hopefully the first one will be available in about three months in bookstores. And, um, and I believe that these are the steps that are going to help the world change the trajectory that we're on and, and, and raise that vibration. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for, for not only doing what you're doing and for writing about it, but just for raising the broader awareness of, of this horrible issue of child trafficking. It's been a, it's been a labor of love. And, um, I, uh, Maybe on a different podcast after the books come out, we'll talk in detail about what they are and uh, and why those are keys to helping to change people's hearts and people's minds so that we can create a massive impact in the world. I believe that that um, this is a problem that can be fixed, but it's not going to be fixed with with ego and pride, and it's not going to be fixed with one foundation trying to say, hey, I'm better than this other one. Anybody who's out there doing good and making a positive impact is, is somebody that I, that I hold up as, as doing good. Um, however, if we're really going to make a difference, it's, it's not being the hero and going in and pulling kids out. It's figuring out how to 
help people change those the the, the negative self-talk and helping them understand what loving themselves is, helping them understand how every one of us are energetically connected to each other, to Mother Earth, to the universe, to God, and, and helping them understand why living a life uh, with, with a strong moral compass is going to lead to true happiness in their own life and yeah. others, and teaching them how to do so. That's, that's the path that I'm on, and that's the path to healing. That will, that will stop child trafficking. Yeah. And that was going to be my exact question. So it sounds like your view is the more that people can find that inner peace, that inner harmony, that is what's going to help to curtail that demand. Do you say that, you know, is what's really driving the industry? Um, yes. It's like, in, in my vision, this is a two or three part um, focus. So step one, I'm going to call it teaching people how to feel and recognize the spirit of truth. So that, that intuition that we have inside of each of us. In fact, um, in the first chapter of my first book, the first book is going to be called, Are You Listening? Not Are You Listening, but Are You Listening? And it's, it's talking about how, how building the companies, finding the children, doing the undercover, building the foundation, all of these things was more tied to this than this. And, um, and, and how every single one of us were born with the ability to discern good from evil and right from wrong and truth from, from lies, etc. And you can call it, you know, the spirit of Christ. You can call it the, the spirit of truth. You can call it intuition. You can call it a connection to the divine. There's all kinds of things you can do. It's something that every one of us have. And I, I'm going to start in that first chapter about a story of a guy that I met in my early 20s. This guy was named Jerry Prine. He was, uh, uh, he never graduated from eighth grade. He, he read on a third grade level. He, everybody called him stupid his whole life. Yet he was the inventor of over 300 life-saving medical devices. He was the inventor of the original software that uh, voice recognition was built upon with IBM. And I went to lunch with him. And he said, Paul, he said, you could have an IQ at 200 if you wanted. And I said, no, I'm really not that smart. I, I worked my butt off for the grades that I got. He goes, no, he said, the difference between me and you is that I listen better than you. I said, you listen better than me? He said, no, I listen better than you. He said, how long has the universe been around? Well, actually, before that, it, he said, he, he said, um, he said um, those medical devices that I invented, do you think that I invented them? And I said, yeah, you have the patents, right? He goes, Yeah. He said, uh, but I didn't invent them. I said, what do you mean? He said, how long has the universe been around? I said, oh, billions of years. He said, billions upon billions of years. He said, those medical devices were invented billions of years ago. I was a better listener than you. He said, you see it all the time in music where people, um, artists have the veil is thinner to, to their connection to the divine, to God, to the universe, et cetera. And he said, he said, Many musical works were written note perfect the first time because they were already written and they were just better listeners than you. He said, 
most people discount their intuition because they know not from where it came. They think that it came from their limited knowledge and the books they've read, and they already beat themselves up and don't trust themselves anyway. So why would they trust their intuition? That came from them, right? But when they realize that it came from a place of infinite truth and learn to trust it, learn to make those phone calls when that person comes into your mind, learn that all of my business success was based on listening in that way. All of the child rescue missions was based on listening that way. And so that I believe is step one is introducing people to what your audience already knows. So uh, the majority of people out there, they, they think this is, you know, hocus pocus, whatever, you know, feeling in your heart, whatever. But if I can teach from a, from an example of many, many stories of how using this tool has brought about infinite abundance in my life, in finance and relationships and in, in uh, the charity work, etc. But then step two is that we're not just a receiver, we're also a transmitter. And, and how, you know, step one or book one is, are you listening? Step two or book two is, is understanding that faith is not a religious term. It's most people think that faith is going to church and asking God to fix things in their life that they don't believe are going to be fixed. Faith is a is an eternal principle. It's a universal law. It is the most powerful law in the universe. And it's simply this, it's the unwavering conviction that what I want to have happen will happen. The problem is most people have a hard time with unwavering conviction about anything. Should I start this new job? Should I marry this woman, etc.? And so should I move to this new city? It's because they, they, they don't trust themselves. They don't trust their intuition. They don't trust. But if they decided what they wanted and realized that God wants them to be happy and successful and, and they, they lean into that with unwavering conviction that it's not just the law of attraction. It in reality is the law of creation and our actions and our words and our thoughts are literally creating a world of abundance that are in line with your dominant thoughts. And this is why things like pornography are so dangerous, is because in your mind, you're already cheating on your wife. You're already using this, this beautiful, divine, intimate power that, that can be used for so many beautiful things in creation, etc., is, is, um, is something that is just thrown away to whatever's on your screen. And so, so that's why I can help people understand that that controlling their mind, controlling their thoughts, listening to this, that energetic conversation is going to keep people, you're not going to be raping an eight-year-old when you understand that we're all energetic. And step three, book three is all on unconditional love, not just for other people, but most importantly for yourself. And forgiving yourself for all the crap that you've ever done and changing and being a brand new person full of light and love and, and forgiveness and peace and letting go of greed and envy and, and, and judgment, etc. Those energetic conversations are going to bring people in alignment with, with their higher self in, in alignment with deity and will help solve the generational abuse of, of, of trauma that is leading to things like child trafficking. So that's, that's my goal. I'm not just going to help millions heal. I'm going to help billions. And uh, we're putting a lot of time and money behind 
the promotion of some of these tools. And uh, we're going to translate some of these things in multiple languages. And, um, and I believe I can come with credibility in these teachings. There's so many metaphysical teachers out there that say, yeah, do this, whatever. I have actual real life examples of building hugely successful companies and attracting the right people into those by, by visualizing it before it ever happened. And all of the universe comes together and God to, to, to create those dominant thoughts and, and really now tying into infinite love where people ask me, Paul, how can you sit in front of a trafficker, somebody who's selling you an eight-year-old child and, and not have them see the anger in your eyes for who they are and what they're doing? And my answer surprises people. I tell them it's because I love them. You love them. How can you love them? What they're doing is just horrible. Now, I, I love the innocence of the children more, but I have unconditional love for them. And I have found that if I ever judge another human being, whether it's for selling me an eight-year-old child or cutting me off on the freeway or jipping me on, on my my financial, whatever it is, if I'm ever judging another human being, there's a 100% chance that I don't have enough information to make that judgment. I don't know if that guy cutting me off on the freeway was his daughter's in the hospital. I don't, I don't know. I, maybe he's just an asshole. I don't know. You know, I don't know if that guy's selling me an eight-year-old child. I don't know if he's, he's, if he was raped as a child. I'm sure there was a thousand bad decisions that got him to the point where he thought that it was okay to sell me a child. Now, I'm going to do everything in my power to ensure he never hurts another child again. But I can't judge him. And I can hope that behind bars in a place where he's away from being able to hurt children, I'm hoping he can find redemption in some way. But, but that place of true peace, that place of infinite love doesn't come from polarity. It comes from that center point. That center point is that of true peace and, and unconditional love. And from that standpoint, we can help people to heal in understanding that, that I don't know a million things that happen in their life to get them to this point. Well, I'm, uh, I'm hoping that you can have some good people in your audience that, that, can, that can feel those words. I, I, have, I have so much that's going to be shared in the books from an energetic standpoint in understanding unconditional love and understanding forgiveness of yourself and understanding ways to release trauma just to let it go and, and, and how to do that and how to hold on to the light that is in you, how to release the crap that happened to you in the past. Uh, there's so many beautiful things in there, but it starts with teaching people how to feel and recognize truth because there's so much fake news out there. And I'm going to say it's on both sides, you know, I, there's for a long time, you know, I was I was buying into the to the to the far right conspiracies, and I realized there's as much fake news there as on the far left conspiracies, right? And and then I have some beautiful connections and some friends on both sides, and I'm like, you know what? Somehow people need to learn how to feel and recognize the spirit of truth, because fake news is coming from all directions, and it's mass psychosis being put to create fear. It is. And I think that's such a good point. And I mean, I think we've all fallen victim to it, no matter, you know, how much you wish you hadn't, because it's just impossible not to. Right. And, you know, I think for me personally, one of those places was, was Donald Trump. Right. And I think, you know, I had 
always grown up as a liberal. I was bought into everything that was said about him negative was absolutely true that he was crazy to be suggesting, you know, human trafficking was anything that it was. And then, you know, as I've, as I've learned more about the true nature of the problem, it's definitely helped me to shift my perspective. Now I still personally very much struggle with him specifically because there are enough red flags around him personality wise that I question his own integrity. And, you know, the deeper you learn about what's going on, I think the more rightly so you can become paranoid. Right. And so it's like, is Trump actually a hero? Is he, you know, coordinated uh, opposition? I can't, I don't know. So I, I, I would hard, love to get your thoughts. To tell. I'm in the same place. I was, I was at, I was at his inauguration. I was actually there on the, on election day on the, on, on, in 2016. And I was with the Trump family that day. I was with his sister and his brother inside the roped off area with just me and the attorney general and the Trump family as we watched the whole, the whole map turning red. And we're like, holy crap, he actually won, you know. But at, at the same time, I've, I've come to understand that there is good in everybody, but everybody is fallible. And unfortunately, I can't believe anything that I see on the news. I can't, I can't believe anything that I see in social media. You've got to learn how to discern. This is the thing. You can't trust your eyes. You can't trust your ears. You can't even trust your nose. You've got to figure out how to trust the senses that can't be fooled. And so that's the only way. And I, I've, got, I've got over 100 pages written already of exactly that. How to understand, how to really cleanse your vessel and tie in to that ability to feel and recognize that spirit of truth. And that's that because we live in this crazy world back and forth. That's the only, that's the only step that's going to start people moving towards that personal growth and ascension past the trauma is learning that one principle. Yeah, I think that's so well put. And as you think about the organizations that are in power today, you know, the, the thing, the theme that they kind of all grip on is just their way of keeping power is by keeping us yeah. down, right? By preventing us from knowing who we truly are, what what we truly are, where we truly That's are, right? For ten thousand years, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to drop a little droplet in just to let people think for a while. But as you learn to feel and recognize the spirit of truth, question everything. Everything that you were taught by your parents, everything you were taught by your pastor, everything you were taught by your politicians, everything you were taught by big, big pharma and the media and everything else, question it all and, and then really start to ask yourself, what, I'm just going to go there, what divine writings within sacred scripture of all religions, which ones were truly divine inspiration? And which ones were put in later by egotistical people who would use God and religion to control and further their own agenda? And I believe that the answer to that question is interwoven throughout all sacred scripture. You have to ask yourself, okay, Constantine, 300 years after Christ, 300 years, decides he's going to put together all of the, the different factions of Christianity. Why? Because he was a good Christian man? No, because he wanted to consolidate his power. Constantine was not a good man. He killed his own son. He, he boiled his wife to death. 
right? This was not a good man. Yet this was the man who 300 AD decided to put all of them together and say, is it baptism by immersion, baptism by sprinkling? Is it one God? Is it three gods? Everything else so we can consolidate power. And you have to ask yourself, of the books that were in the New Testament, were there not other writings? Yes, there were. It was estimated that than 10% of the writings that were of that time were actually included. What wasn't included and why? And were there things that were included that were put in to hold us back from understanding that in reality, we are all connected to God? We don't have to go through some pastor to get us there. Hopefully, your pastors are teaching you the true word, and, and, and you, can, you can understand that we can all ascend, that we can all have a direct connection to deity, that we can all release all these. You don't have to go pay money doing your Hail Marys to be able to forgive your sins. That's something between you and God and you changing your ways and, and making amends. That's, that's where you can have that inner death change. So, so anyway, that's something that that's more four years down the road in talking about what I call 10,000 years of deceit. And, and, and that's been woven in to, uh, to our culture. And we have to ask ourselves what things were taken out who am I really? What do I have the ability to do that I've been taught? And, and what kind of generational teachings have, have kept us down from? Yeah. Wow. And I love that you bring all this up, too. I've actually just been reading the Nag Hammadi scriptures, um, which were some of the early Christian philosophy that wasn't included in the New Testament. And a lot of my studies before that on the spiritual side had been focused on the Vedic philosophy. And it's so interesting. You compare the scriptures of both and like the language and the symbolism is different, but the core messages are, I mean, almost spot on one for one. It's, it's really beautiful to see that. I would like to read those. Send me a, send me a link on those because I, yeah, I'm I will, super, yeah. super interested in studying all, um, all claims of divine inspiration in any religious books and all of them, because I'm, I'm, and I'm I'm analyzing each one of them with that with that that spirit of truth tied to it, and understanding that that there were things weaved into some of them that that are holding us down. Um, and so I'd be curious: Do you have any uh, spiritual practices that you do on a daily basis, or how do you think about your, you know your own uh, spiritual traditions? Let me tell you this story. This this will be super cool. Okay, so um, years ago. When that, that you watched the Operation Toussaint documentary, how that entire mission started, um, we were in uh, in Haiti. In fact, I'll tell you a little bit of the history. My son um, had had served; he had been two years on a on a church mission. While he was gone, I had gotten a divorce from his wife, and I mean from my from his mom, and uh, and I had I had fallen away from my strict religious principles. So he. He came back on a Tuesday. He'd been gone for two years. He was trying to figure out if I was a good guy or not, right, still. And so I, two days later, I put him on a jet, Gulfstream jet with me. We fly back to Texas. We picked up a guy named Glenn Beck, who's got a big radio talk show thing. We, we flew to Haiti, where Glenn was filming some of the children that had been rescued in some of the, the, the orphanages. And so we were there uh, for a few days, just filming some of those with him. And it was Saturday night, about 6 o'clock at night. And, uh, not, and actually, no, it was closer to 10 o'clock at night. We were leaving at 6 a.m. the next morning. And uh, Tim came to me and he said, Paul, he said, I, 
I've had teams on the ground for the last five days. We haven't found any leads of any good traffickers. Um, are you willing to go out tonight? Um, and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd love to go out tonight. I told my son stay here in the hotel. I went out that night and connected with the top trafficking rings in the country that ended up with that rescue after I kept coming a few more times. But how I did it, the next morning, we were we got on the plane. It was my son. It was Glenn. It was Tim, myself. And, and this was my crowning moment because Tim had just gotten briefed by one of the Navy SEALs that was out with us the night before. And he shakes his head. He's sitting there at this table with me and my son, Glenn. He shakes his head and he said, you know, he said, in 14 years, working in Homeland Security and with CIA and with some FBI agents, he said, one of the best undercover operators I've ever worked with is actually Paul. <laughs> and Glenn turns to me, he says, why is that? Why? Why you never had any government training? What 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 is it that you do? And I said, I'll tell you exactly what happened last night. I said before we went out, I got in a really deep focused meditation, and I visualized seeing those kids. I visualized it with everything that I am. I saw it. I saw where they were, and then we went out. And it was about two in the morning. We hadn't found any traffickers. And I said to one of the the special forces guys that were with us, I said, Can I? And I take lead. Are you good with that? And he said, yeah, yeah, I want to I'll see what you do. I said, okay. I said, um, he said, Tim said, you're really good at this. I want to see how you do this. I said, okay, first things first, I need you to understand that I believe in God. I said, most people believe in a supreme being. Some people call him Allah. Some people call it the universe or goddess or Jehovah, or whatever. I said, God exists and cares more about these children than you and I ever could and knows exactly where they are. So if you're okay with it, I'm going to start out by asking for some help. So here we are, 2 a.m., downtown Port-au-Prince, Haiti, one of the darkest, most voodoo-infested places on the planet, and we take off our hats and offer up a prayer. And then I said, guys, now I need you to understand how I see fear and faith. I said, most people think that faith is going to church and asking God to fix things in their life that they don't believe are going to be fixed. And I, I taught them that principle that I already said to your audience here, that, that faith is one of the most powerful laws in the universe, but it has to do with unwavering conviction. And it's easy for me in that space to have unwavering conviction that I'm going to find those kids. I don't care if God's a woman or a mountain or a God or what, it doesn't matter. There's no God in the universe that's okay with an eight-year-old being raped. And so it's easy for me to have that unwavering conviction. I also said it's important to understand that fear and faith cannot exist in the same person at the same time. The reason behind it, they're the same power. And when you understand that, you can harness it better. People who believe bad things happen to them attract that. People who believe good things attract that. I said, because of that, I might do some things tonight that you guys might think are a little bit stupid because I don't have fear. I feel safer here being protected because of this mission than I do sitting in my office and solving. And so I said, now just drive, drive. And they're driving. They're like, okay, dude, whatever, right? I said, drive. I said, stop right there. I said, that black alley, that motorcycle, yeah, right there. He said, what are you, you going to do? I said, that guy knows something. I can feel it. And he said, well, this is a dangerous area. We need to survey the area first. I said, no, we don't have time for that. In fact, you guys are going to intimidate him. Stay here. I'm going to go out and talk to him myself. And I get out and I'm talking to this guy and he he, I walk up to him and he pulls up his, his shirt and there's a gun that's stuffed right here in his, his belt. And, and I, I'm just listening. 
And I said, what's that for? I, I know I said, I said, uh, I, I pulled out a hundred dollar bill and I handed it to him. And he says, what's that for? I said, that's for you. You keep it. I said, I have another one for you. If you can help me with something. And, um, sure enough, he had connections with the traffickers that I was looking for and ended up with that rescue that you saw in Operation Chasson. And so, so how answer to your question on a daily basis, number one, in my meditations, my number one goal is to cleanse my vessel from pride, from greed, from ego, from anger, from judgment, from blame, all of those things, flushing that out and, and getting to a place of, of true unconditional love for myself, for my family, for the world, no matter, even, even the people who, who have thrown the most darts at me, who would try to defame me in whatever way, feeling a deep unconditional love for them is, is, is how I start. I have to get into that place of Zen, that place of unconditional love, because if any of those emotions are there, it's going to interfere with my ability to communicate with, with my creator. And so getting into that place, completely clearing my mind, just like on the, the movie, The Matrix, you've got to clear your mind, Neo, and let go of, 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 of doubt. And th these are all things, if I can clear it completely, hold on to unconditional love, focus on those things that I want with, with unwavering faith and conviction, breathe deeply. Breath is so important. And, and every single breath, feeling light and peace and love coming in and every breath out, uh, flushing out those things that I'm pushing out from an emotional standpoint, then in that place, that's where I begin my conversation with my, with my creator. And, um, and that's, that's where I, I receive the, the most beautiful direction. And that direction comes in a spirit of peace and harmony. It doesn't come with, you know, excitement and whatever else. It's, I can feel that spirit of, of truth through that peace in my heart as, those, as that information comes. So that's my spiritual practice. We, we pray before every meal. I pray in the morning and at night, but, but that deep meditation changes everything. Yeah, that's great. Wow. Well, Paul, this has been such a fun conversation. Um, for folks who maybe want to learn more or who want to help get involved, should they look at their, your website? Can they donate? Like, what's the best path forward for folks? Yeah. More? From the Child Liberation Foundation, you can go to liberatechild.org. To, uh, for me, myself, right now, I own uh, the domain paulhutchinsonofficial.com. Uh, However, I will say that we're working on some new domain names. I, I'm okay being the messenger, but I don't want it to be about the messenger. I need it to be about the message itself. And so um, the Paul Hutchinson official will eventually uh, be rerouted into something that's focused on the mission rather than the messenger. So, um, but yeah, they can reach out to me there. They can reach out to me on, on uh, LinkedIn. And we're, we're just barely coming out of the shadows from a social media standpoint. I literally opened up my Facebook page. I started a new one because I didn't even have my old email or my old phone number from the one before. And so started a new one and ended up with like 400 friends on my first day. So, um, you know, I think, I think, and, and it's all focused on, on healing. That's beautiful. 
you know, one other thing I wanted to mention to you as well is I've been thinking about drafting some legislation or drafting a policy recommendation for our legislators around sensible drug policy. Um, and one of the things I've come to recognize as we kind of talk about, you know, who the real perpetrators are of this criminal enterprise, as well as drug trafficking, right? I've, I've come to recognize that there are a lot of overlap in the movements to end human trafficking, as well as the movement to end the global narcotics trade. So with that thought in mind, to the extent that we in the drug industry can be helpful to you, you know, fighting human trafficking, please let, let me know. We would love to, you know, kind of team up in that fight. I would love that. I will say this, and um, I think this is important to understand from a trauma healing standpoint. Um, I agree with you wholeheartedly that the narcotics trade is destroying families and destroying our country. However, in the late 60s, a lot of things got thrown under the bus at the same time that, that, that cocaine and, and, and uh, heroin and other things were, were considered uh, um, you know, illegal drugs, etc. Some of those things have, been, have surfaced recently in a way that creates trauma healing like you wouldn't believe. So there's a big difference between psychedelics and psycholytics. So, you know, a psychedelic, you know, let's go get high on mushrooms. And, you know, there's, 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 there's um, a bunch of people that use things for recreational use, etc. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about some studies that have been done by Hopkins University in using things like sassafras, white lily, uh, mistletoe, psilocybin, and others in a controlled environment with a facilitator, uh, uh, a, a, a community of people who are healers, um, I have seen more transformations within 24 hours than people have received in 10 years of therapy. And John Hopkins University did a lot of studies on those. And so I'm actively pushing for new legislation to decriminalize some of those tools so that they can be used with trained facilitators to create amazing paths to healing from people with massive. That's fantastic. And, you know, we, we certainly share that, um, that goal as well. I mean, I think, you know, to the point about why the controlled substances act was passed and, you know, what, what substances were included as schedule one versus what weren't right. It, it, continues to paint a picture of, you know, the, the tools for healing, the ones that help us connect with our higher selves are oftentimes the ones that are purposefully suppressed from us. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, we're online there. In fact, tomorrow I fly to Jamaica. We have a group of very high profile church leaders who have never tried any kind of mind altering substances their entire life. So some church leaders um, and some some high level politicians and uh, and some doctors, some doctors, some PhDs and MDs and psychiatrists that have never experienced those things before. We're taking them to uh, uh, to have a, a guided meditation, um, plant medicine healing experience in Jamaica over this next weekend, where it's all fully legal there, and and I believe it will go a long way. And having these very high-profile church leaders and political leaders and doctors be able to come back and help testify before the the decision makers in, in reforming some of the laws. So super excited about this week. Yeah. Well, Paul, thanks again. This was such a blast.
Well, Jordan, you're a good man. It was an honor to connect with you in Egypt. I could feel your heart, your beautiful energy, your desire to make the world a better place. And, um, and I'm, I'm honored to be a part of your podcast. And if any of your people want to reach out to me directly, then they can do so on my website, even reach out to me on social media. And, and the best thing they can do to help me is help put me on some more podcasts. Put me on, if you enjoy this at all, open some doors for me on stages, on podcasts. I've, uh, I've, had, I've had no open social media or podcasts, anything in the last 10 years, but I believe that the time has come to help use these tools to help create change. So if anybody has some connections with some large audiences, then, then reach out to me directly. I'll reach out to Jordan and he can get in touch with me. But yes, connect any of them with me would be wonderful. Fantastic. Paul, thank you so much. I'm honored to have you as well. I mean, just everything you've done to save the children, to bring awareness to this horrible issue. Thank you so much. And it's been my absolute pleasure getting to know you. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you all for joining this discussion on a dark topic for which there is bright light at the end of the tunnel. In this conversation, Paul mentioned how human trafficking is the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world, that it's already surpassed illegal arms dealing to become the second most profitable on its way to knocking off illicit drugs as kingpin, that there are 8 million children and 40 million total humans currently in human trafficking more than at any point in history. And we can't forget another tragic fact. People in this underground system of slavery have short lifespans, so those individuals need to be replenished every few years. How is it possible that a criminal enterprise this heinous, this massive, with demand originating out of industrialized nations like the United States, how is it possible that this has been happening under our noses? I started this episode by mentioning how human trafficking and child sex abuse are dark topics that only get darker the deeper you investigate. Personally, learning about human trafficking has shattered my prior worldview. As I've researched the topic and heard firsthand accounts from survivors and white hats like Paul, I've been forced to reconsider everything I thought I knew. That there could be individuals this evil operating such an enterprise that the specific individuals involved, many of whom have achieved the highest levels of perceived world status, could have deceived us all so completely. However, on the other side of those challenges in my own journey, I've found infinite optimism. Because once confronted with the reality of human trafficking, solving the root of the problem is quite simple. I suspect someday soon we will learn exactly who has built and run this human trafficking and child sex abuse criminal enterprise. But before that happens, we can first recognize what is the issue at hand. What could be driving this dislocation between the reality of human trafficking and the public's awareness of it? Human trafficking, media, and entertainment. My theory theory follows. There is a criminal cabal at the center of world power. Elite members of this organized crime syndicate have infiltrated the highest levels of society around the globe, including politics, academia, media, science, entertainment, finance, private enterprise, military, tech, and nonprofits. 
This cabal has leveraged their control of the media to suppress stories of human trafficking, child sex abuse, and satanic ritualistic abuse while also using these platforms to censor, vilify, and ridicule those who, do, who dare speak the truth. Concurrently, the cabal uses their control of the entertainment and advertising industries to promote pedophilia and blood ritual. In doing so, they've used the boiling the frog approach such that over decades this agenda has become increasingly overt. For the coincidence theorists who dismiss allegations of conspiracy out of hand, this can all sound like batshit nonsense. I can empathize as I was once in your shoes. But unfortunately, there are real criminal conspiracies, and some of them go extremely deep. Here are three examples to highlight in support of this theory from recent world events. I'll juxtapose the mainstream and social media's response to reporters and whistleblowers who challenge their narrative with examples of times the establishment has turned a blind eye to those involved in human trafficking and child sex abuse. Example number one, Jeffrey Epstein's clients receive protection. Julian Assange receives imprisonment and extradition. Why is it that three and a half years after Epstein was arrested for sex trafficking minors, the public still has not seen his flight logs or client lists? His 2019 arrest came 12 years after the financier got a slap on the wrist for molesting dozens of underage girls in Florida. That first arrest occurred six years after a now-deleted 2001 Evening Standard article was published. The article introduced Epstein as an immensely powerful New York property developer and financier with an intensely secret business life who owns properties all over the country. It also stated that Epstein had made millions from his business links with the likes of Bill Gates, Donald Trump, and Ohio billionaire Leslie Wexner during the 1990s and beyond. Wexner is the fashion mogul behind brands including Victoria's Secret, Abercrombie & Fitch, Express, and Bath & Body Works. His house of brands has previously come under fire for ad campaigns that sexualize women and minors. Barely one month after Epstein's 2019 arrest, he was found dead in his cell at Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York. His death was determined as suicide, something questioned by everyone with a nose for bullshit. His number two, Ghislaine Maxwell, was recently sentenced to just 20 years in prison despite her leadership role in Epstein's human trafficking enterprise. Outside of Maxwell, the cabal scapegoat du jour, not a single Epstein client or employee has been prosecuted. Meanwhile, the media has flooded the internet and streaming services with limited hangout articles and documentaries. These are meant to minimize the damage done to known associates of Epstein until people are distracted by the next big scandal. Meanwhile, Julian Assange, the whistleblower who founded WikiLeaks, has been under arrest in London for almost four years. He had been living in the Ecuadorian embassy since 2012, fearing he would be extradited to Sweden on a rape allegation which he denies. A UN panel in Feb 2016 ruled Assange as having been arbitrarily detained by UK and Swedish authorities. In June of last year, the UK Home Secretary Preeti Patel signed an order to extradite Julian Assange to the US, where he is wanted on 18 criminal charges for files and diplomatic cables published in 2010. If convicted, he faces up to 175 years in prison. He's currently in custody at London's high-security Belmarsh Prison, awaiting extradition to the United States. And yet, while Assange has been imprisoned without trial, why haven't more people called for investigations into the criminal activity WikiLeaks exposed? For example, when, when John Podesta served as co-chair of Barack Obama's transition team, he received a smoking gun email from Michael Fromman. At the time, Fromman was an executive at Citigroup, the fourth largest bank in the U.S., 
This email recommended a list of cabinet candidates for Obama to choose from if elected. Fromman sent the email in October of 2008, one month before Obama was first elected president in an election portrayed as a grassroots movement based on hope and change. This list proved remarkably accurate for the cabinet appointees Obama named over the subsequent eight years. On Substack, I've included in the appendix the Fromman email, the attachment in question, and call-out boxes to show which recommendations ended up as cabinet appointees. Mind you, the Citigroup executive selected the men and women to run our country during the depths of the global financial crisis. The GFC was a period of economic panic when the largest banks in the world siphoned trillions of dollars from American taxpayers to prevent a financial collapse which they had created. Citigroup was the largest beneficiary of the bailout, receiving over $517 billion. How have we allowed this to happen? Why is it that Assange remains in jail, expected to be extradited to the U.S. on espionage charges for publishing documents that he didn't steal? Why have the perpetrators involved in Epstein's organization remained free, running our geopolitical system like lunatics? It's time we the people demand the list of Epstein's clients and associates. It's time we investigate what the WikiLeaks publications revealed and prosecute the men and women implicated in humanitarian crimes and corruption. It's time we demand Julian Assange's release and finally start protecting whistleblowers and journalists, not the criminals they've exposed. By the way, an interesting development in the whole Epstein spiderweb took place less than a month ago. The government of the U.S. Virgin Islands sued J.P. Morgan, the largest bank in the U.S., for its role in human trafficking violations. The highly redacted suit alleged that J.P. Morgan knowingly, negligently, and unlawfully provided and pulled the levers through which recruiters and victims were paid and was indispensable to the operation and concealment of the Epstein trafficking enterprise. Are you starting to see how the threads of this twisted sweater connect? Example number two, Elon Musk's Twitter. Vilified for reducing censorship and reinstating deplatformed users, ignored for removing child sex abuse materials. Elon Musk acquired Elon Musk acquired Twitter for 44 billion on October 28, 2022. This acquisition took place almost 2 years after the social media company deplatformed Donald Trump on January 8, 2021. At the time, Trump was serving as the acting president of the United States. That infamous decision spurred an increase in censorship across the platform over the following 2 years. Of course, the censorship and deplatforming was always done to protect users, protect them from hate speech, medical misinformation, Russian disinformation, QAnon conspiracy theories, an increase in vaccine hesitancy, etc., etc., etc. But as always, the problem with censorship is that once the content has been removed, how do we know what it said? Is it safer to trust centralized leadership of tech companies as the arbiters of truth over the open discourse of the public? Musk had, been act- Musk had been asking these questions himself, and in the SEC filing announcing his attempt to acquire Twitter, Musk stated, I invested in Twitter as I believe in its potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe, and I believe free speech is a societal imperative for a functioning democracy. However, since making my investment, I now realize the company will neither thrive nor serve the societal imperative in its current form. Twitter needs to be transformed as a private company. 
Since his acquisition, Musk has fired top executives, laid off half of the company's staff, launched account reinstatements, and revamped the platform subscription service. If you do a Google News search for Elon Musk Twitter, you can see how the mainstream media views these changes. Inc.com. Musk is making changes that are actively hostile to Twitter's users. The Street. After Musk took over, McDonald's, Starbucks stopped tweeting. HuffPost. Elon Musk turns over Twitter records to key source of COVID misinformation. Business Insider. Twitter is closing or getting kicked out of many international offices as Elon Musk skips rent and dramatically shrinks operations. CNN. Elon Musk's Twitter accused of unlawful staff firings in the UK. CNN again. Musk's Twitter, re- Musk's Twitter restores accounts of prominent election deniers two years after Jan 6 attack. What's noticeably absent from the top Google results are the disturbing disclosures Musk's team has made about internal events before his takeover. Musk has been working with a team of independent journalists to release these disclosures in a series known as the Twitter Files. In these shocking revelations, internal Twitter documents show that former intelligence agents were employed throughout the company, an issue which undoubtedly continues running rampant at other tech giants like Facebook, Google, and TikTok. The documents show old Twitter management colluded with intelligence agents in the months leading up to the 2020 presidential election to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story, which could have profoundly impacted the results. They show that Twitter rigged the COVID-19 debate by, one, censoring information that was true but inconvenient to U.S. government policy, two, by discrediting doctors and other experts who disagreed, and three, by suppressing ordinary users, including some sharing the CDC's own data. Most relevant for our current discussion on human trafficking, there has been minimal mention of the positive steps taken to remove child sex abuse materials, or CSAM. After Musk took over Twitter, he said he was shocked to learn that CSAM was a massive platform on was a massive problem on the platform. Musk said this is literally the top priority in the whole company that Twitter cannot be used for child exploitation. On December 9th, he tweeted, "When Ella Irwin, who now runs Trust and Safety, joined Twitter earlier this year, almost no one was working on child safety. She raised this with Ned and Parag, but they rejected her staffing request. I made it top priority." Irwin jumped in to add more context, stating, I wish this was false, but my experience this year supports this. I fought hard to get funding to replace the people working on this who left in early 2022 and was told no. At one point, there were zero engineers and very few employees working on CSE and still no funding. An independent cybersecurity analyst working alongside top officials at Twitter found accounts posting CSAM content had garnered more than 10 million views on the platform under previous ownership. The analyst report found that over 95% of active accounts posting CSAM, which included videos of children and teens involved in sexual activities, acted with impunity for years. Twitter under Musk's ownership now directly suspends accounts publishing CSAM, whereas before the platform would typically just remove specific tweets. In November, month over month, Twitter suspended 57% more user accounts who had created, distributed, and or engaged with child sexual exploitation material. The platform said this was significantly more than any other month year to date. How is it new management could so quickly achieve what the old team could not, despite CSAM being a known problem for 10 years at Twitter? 
And despite the now abundant evidence, the organization had former intelligence operatives running all over it. And despite the now abundant evidence, the organization had intelligence operatives running all over it. Why has the media focused on blasting every Musk decision while failing to highlight the profound implications of the Twitter file revelations? Does this not also demonstrate a pattern of the media ignoring criminals who sexually abuse children and then vilifying those who expose them? Example number three, outrage when Rogan questioned the COVID-19 narrative, silence after Balenciaga's pedophilic BDSM-inspired ad campaign. In early 2021, Joe Rogan found himself in hot water with the establishment. Despite having the number one podcast in the country, Rogan was confronted with calls to cancel his show. Artists like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell were vowing to boycott Spotify if they didn't deplatform him. Coincidentally, shortly after the scandal broke, a compilation video surfaced of Rogan using the N-word. He did so 24 times across his 12 years of hosting the podcast. This was a transparent effort to paint Rogan as a racist and to strengthen the familiar outcry of our woke cancel culture. What crime did Rogan commit to receive this punishment? He'd recently interviewed two doctors, Dr. Peter McCullough and Dr. Pete and Dr. Robert Malone, who dared to question the gospel of Dr. Anthony Fauci and condemn his COVID-19 policy response. Dr. McCullough is one of the most published cardiologists ever in America with over a thousand publications and 660 citations in the National Library of Medicine. Unlike Fauci, McCullough also worked as a treating physician to help infected patients during the pandemic. Dr. Malone was instrumental in the development of mRNA vaccine technology, holding 10 patents on the platform that gives rise to these vaccines. Malone noted he is likely the only researcher deeply involved in the development of mRNA vaccine technology who didn't have a financial stake in the vaccines. He also happens to be one of those dangerous users deplatformed from Twitter during its dark days due to spreading medical misinformation. When one of the inventors of the novel mRNA vaccine technology criticized our government's pandemic response and is silenced for it, should we start to consider that things may have gone awry in our public discourse? Then on the other hand, just two months ago, the luxury fashion brand Balenciaga published a depraved ad campaign. Anyone who has seen the images has noted the overt messaging of child sex and abuse. Yet my hunch is that most of you haven't even heard of this campaign. On Substack, I've posted the images from the Balenciaga campaign with the children's faces blurred. In these images, you can see young children holding teddy beers in bondage gear, similar to BDSM attire. One image had a roll of yellow tape with printed letters that misspells Balenciaga with two A's. Critics of the campaign have highlighted that Baal, spelled with two A's, is an ancient philosophical name for the demon thought to rule hell. Another image shows court documents hidden under a handbag in the foreground. Upon closer examination, the pages come from the Ashcroft v. Free Speech Coalition court case. This was a case in which the U.S. Supreme Court upheld a lower court decision that parts of the Child Pornography Prevention Act of 1996 were vague and overly broad and thus violated the free speech protection of the First Amendment. This type of iconography did not appear in these photographs by mistake. Pages from a court document protecting child pornography did not appear in this photograph by mistake. Who designed these advertisements? Who at Balenciaga approved these advertisements? And why? What is their agenda?
After the ad campaign sparked outrage, Balenciaga retracted it and attempted to shift the blame by suing the production company who took the photos for $25 million. But critics have noted Balenciaga and other brands owned by its parent caring company have promoted other satanic and child exploitative materials in the past. Meanwhile, celebrities and sponsors have stayed quiet on the campaign, waiting for the storm to pass. For example, Kim Kardashian, a Balenciaga brand ambassador, waited six days after the scandal broke to tweet the following. I have been quiet for the past few days, not because I haven't been disgusted and outraged by the recent Balenciaga campaigns, but because I wanted an opportunity to speak to their team to understand for myself how this could have happened. As a mother of four, I have been shaken by the disturbing images. The safety of children must be held with the highest regard, and any attempts to normalize child abuse of any kind should have no place in our society, period. I appreciate Balenciaga's removal of the campaigns and apology. In speaking with them, I believe they understand the seriousness of the issue and will take the necessary measures for this to never happen again. As for my future with Balenciaga, I am currently reevaluating my relationship with the brand, basing it off their willingness to accept accountability for something that should have never happened to begin with, and the actions I am expecting to see them take to protect children. And that's it. A few hollow words and some thought to reevaluating the relationship. Then she waits for the public to move on to the next distraction and goes back to making millions from the company. It'd be one thing if the Balenciaga campaign were an isolated event, but it's not. Far from it. In fact, once your awareness learns to recognize what is going on, you start to see this depraved imagery everywhere. For example, on Substack, I've included rapper Little Nas X's Satan Shoes, a pair of Nike sneakers, spotting a bronze pentagram on the laces, an inverted cross, and actual human blood inside of the shoes. 666 pairs of the shoes sold out in under a minute. I've also included a link to Lady Gaga's now-scrapped music video, Do What You Want, featuring the notorious pedophile R. Kelly. In this video, we see Gaga get drugged and pass out. While, pass out, while passed out, a host of people have sex on top of her body while the music plays the line, Do what you want with my body. Critics have questioned whether do what you want is an allusion to Aleister Crowley's motto, Do what thou wilt. Crowley was a fanatic of sex magic and blood ritual during the first half of the 20th century. His philosophy inspired overtly satanic, organized religious institutions, including Anton LaVey's Church of Satan and Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino's Temple of Set. What is going on here? The Achilles heel. I'd like to end this episode with some words from the late Robert David Steele. Steele is a former CIA operative and whistleblower. In London 2018, Steele served as chief counsel for the International Tribunal for Natural Justice during their inquiry into human trafficking and child sex abuse. What follows are his final remarks from the inquiry opening. I've included a link to the witness testimony from this three-day inquiry on Substack and in the show notes, which I recommend for anyone looking for the truth about human trafficking. It's time we face the evil of human trafficking head on. Once we recognize the depth of this criminal enterprise, we have a moral obligation to end it. Thank you for opening your minds and hearts to this difficult subject. Love to you all. My final uh, comment. The center of gravity for taking down the deep state. Pedophilia is both the 
induction glue. Pedophilia is how the deep state recruits and controls people. Uh, it is also the Achilles heel of the deep state. I believe that once the public realizes that the government is not protecting their children at a scale of vulnerability that we can articulate, then everything else about the government is called into question. All right. So for me, this is a truly righteous endeavor. And I will end by saying that as much good as it might do to get the British angry, for me, the center of gravity for change is the American public. Because if you can get the American public angry, we will stop supporting dictators overseas. We will close all of our military bases overseas. I am on record as a former CIA uh, operations officer is saying that our thousand bases overseas are not there for national defense. They're there to serve as lily pads for the smuggling of guns, gold, cash, drugs, and small children. So let me say I am proud to be in your company, and I believe that no matter what we do or do not do, it is going to make a difference. God bless you all.